genital dermatology or genital symptoms are not really taught in any training programs, well, there's not much research on it either. And almost none of the medications that I'm going to be discussing are FDA approved for the purposes that we use them in the genital area, especially in children, because there are so many things that are not approved in children. Most of our information is from our experience. An awful lot of it is from our ISSVD, where we present small series to each other and talk. Um, so I will not be able to substantiate much of what I'm going to tell you, but I will try to differentiate between what we really know is true um, to what we think is true to maybe. Here are some things that we know are true. If a parent brings their little girl in with a vulvar issue, they're going to be upset. Parents, as you know, tend to get upset anyway when something is wrong with their children. They're the responsible people. But if it's a genital problem, uh, that brings in all kinds of other issues. And sometimes these children are referred to me if there are concerns about child abuse, and that certainly doesn't help very much either, or if there's a concern about a sexually transmitted disease. So very often the parent comes in and is quite upset, even though you may be able to look at that child and come up with an answer in two or three minutes and give them a medication. You can't look after these children in a regular 10-minute visit most of the time. Now, if they've been itching for a week, fine. But by the time they get referred to us as dermatologists, it's not usually a week that they've had a problem. Usually this is a child who has been other places first. I mean, because we're just dermatologists, right? Um, clinicians often jump to sexually transmitted diseases, to yeast or sexually transmitted diseases. It will be rare that you will have a little girl referred to you with any symptoms of itching or burning or pain or rash, and they haven't been, uh, haven't been treated for yeast. Um, Overattention to the genitalia. You know, once a child has got a genital problem, mom's going to look. And very often she's looking three or four or five times a day. And that seems to focus things on the problem and uh, raise uh, uh, anxiety and that sort of thing. And sometimes the child finds out that if she complains of vulvar pain or itching, that's a great way of getting secondary gain. I've had several children who've been homeschooled because of vulvar symptoms, because mom says that she can't go to school. So be aware of that. Sometimes it can be really hard to tell what kinds of symptoms a child is truly having by the time they get to your office. Irritants are common, just like in adults. For some reason, our society really believes that cleanliness is next to godliness. And despite the fact that I will tell my patients that there is no animal on God's green earth except for people who will willingly take a bath and scrub up. Even our Labrador retriever, who loves water, doesn't want to get a bath. Um, he did not mean for us to wash our skin as often, especially mucous membranes and modified mucous membranes. Uh, if you didn't have teeth, you wouldn't wash your mouth most likely. We don't wash the inside of our nose. We don't wash the inside of our eyes. But people will still wash and suds up with dial and everything else, uh, the, the vulvovaginal area and the genital area in general. So trying to get people to stop doing that and to assume that that's what's happening. And many people have already tried many different topical medications by the time they come see you. And most of those are creams. And creams are irritating to everybody, but especially to the prepubertal vulva. 
Uh, so try to avoid creams, try to use ointments, which sometimes is a problem because topical antifungals as a group are creams or solutions or powders, not ointments. Now there's a new one out there, Vusion, which is an ointment is very soothing and extremely expensive. So I tend to use, when I can, Nystatin, which of course is not going to be good for dermatophyte, but it works perfectly fine for a, um, uh, for a yeast infection. And here, uh, I think that Joe is so good. I loved sitting back there and listening to a whole hour of a talk on acne. And you know, it's what we do all day, and I listened to the whole thing and I learned a lot. It makes me feel kind of embarrassed that I learned so much about acne at age 60 here. But I have a little bit of a difference in generics versus, um, uh, versus brand names and that we are the ones who should give the best medicines. I think it is our job to try and control costs, and I'm afraid that that's one reason that our healthcare system is in such a bad, uh, bad way. And so for me, if a generic that's inexpensive will work, um, I'm going to try that first, and if it doesn't work, then I will go to a brand name, except for a couple of medicines, which he has now given me the courage to say out loud, but I'll get there. Um, so yeast is rare in little girls. Once you're out of diapers, you just don't get yeast on the skin unless you're overweight, incontinent, diabetic, immunosuppressed. So once out of diapers, don't let that be a first-line treatment. Sure, swab it for yeast, scrape it for yeast, and look, but don't just assume that it would be yeast if it's in the genital area and if it's a girl. Um, the main thing, I think, in treating these children is to reassure the parents and reassure them again and reassure them again. And that can be hard when this is a problem that we can't cure. Hey, we're dermatologists. Our patients never die and they're never cured. Um, and so that's something that I'm going to tell the parents. You know, for some reason, people think you should be able to cure skin, and we don't cure most medical problems. People either get over them on their own or they're managed. So if a child has got vulvar eczema, I'll try and put it in the context of whole body eczema so it doesn't become an incurable genital disease. But they do need to understand that we are probably not going to give them medication, cure the problem, and they're going to go on without ever having to play another role in looking after it. Because otherwise, as you've seen in other parts of the body, people get better. They use their, how many times have we had somebody referred to us with eczema and they've been on the correct medicine? You say to the patient, well, this didn't get better. Well, sure, it got better, but then I quit treating and it came back. So it's obviously the wrong thing. So we need to let people understand the difference at the beginning between a cure and control. As I heard somebody once say, what you tell patients in advance is patient education. What you tell them afterwards is damage control. All right, starting with irritant contact dermatitis, which is so often the overwashing. The symptoms of irritant contact dermatitis, and this is so common in little girls, between the ages of uh, two or three, and of course irritant uh, contact dermatitis in the diaper age is called diaper dermatitis, sometimes with, with yeast. But after diapers, it is still very, very common in little girls. Uh, it's usually not severe, but it often comes and goes, and it's miserable. And um, when it gets truly miserable, that's when they end up in our office. The symptoms are most often irritation and burning, not so much itching, not so much seeing the child rubbing and scratching, unless they're atopic, and then anything can get them started rubbing and scratching. Um, the prepubertal vulvar skin is really, really Thin. The normal 
prepubertal vulva is red. Uh, just like lips are red, inside of the mouth is pink, well, the prepubertal vulva is normally red. Mom didn't usually notice until there was a problem, then she looks and then it's red, and so she looks every few minutes all day to make sure it's still red, um, which it usually is. Um, so we've already talked about overwashing and about using and to try and use water only and stick them in a tub once a day and just forget soap. You really don't need soap in this area. And in atopic children, very often you're going to get uh, rubbing and scratching and you'll get overlying eczema or lichen simplex chronicus. So as I said, <clears throat> diaper dermatitis is irritant contact dermatitis in someone who's wearing diapers. And sometimes there's yeast, sometimes there's not. You're aware of that. If you get accentuation in the skin folds, if you get surrounding little satellite pustules or satellite papules or satellite collarettes, it's likely that yeast is there. You will need to treat both. Allergic contact dermatitis is very uncommon in children um, uh, in, in, for, in the genital area and not very common in children in general except something like nickel where we certainly see that. But if you do see allergic contact dermatitis in the genital area, it's usually from something that's being used to treat another problem. Mom is putting on neosporin, she's putting, excuse me, neomycin containing um, triple antibiotic or diphenhydramine topically and then they become allergic. <clears throat> but in the, end of, in, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter because you're going to have them stop everything. And irritant contact dermatitis looks just like irritant contact does in other places. This is a child who come, comes in um, irritation, and you can see she's just got some faint macular erythema on the labia majora, uh, but she is um, irritated and um, uh, burning. So we just stopped everything that was being applied because she was being washed a lot. She was being washed with antibacterial soaps because it must be something from dirt and had her put on a topical steroid and she was much, much better in a week. This is a child also who was really itching a lot and her mother was doing a lot of rubbing and, I mean, um, scrubbing. And here she is with this peripheral rim of, where is my, do I have a... I guess I don't have a pointer. Do I have a pointer? Yes, I've got a pointer. She's got a little erosion of the posterior foreshad there. Um, and um, she's got some edema of the clitoral hood and is just itching and scratching. And her teacher at school is not happy about these things. Um, so eliminate the irritants. Uh, give them a topical steroid. And I use ultrapotent steroids. And you know you're not supposed to use ultrapotent steroids in children. You're not supposed to use ultrapotent steroids on skin folds. You're not supposed to use ultrapotent steroids for more than two weeks. Well, you know, you got to do it. Um, we did a study in my office about 10 years ago where we looked at uh, beta-methasone dipropionate in augmented vehicle on children between the ages of four months and 11 years for general atopic dermatitis. And we did cortisol stimulation at the beginning and at the end of three weeks, and we looked at the skin under magnification every week and we did it everywhere they had eczema, including genital area, including the face. Nobody had adrenal suppression. Nobody had any um, uh, atrophy. So I, that dramatically changed the way I treat uh, atopic dermatitis in children. I now start, if a child has got moderate to severe eczema, with an ultrapotent steroid. And I treat them for a month and see them back, and then I back off. And that has been translated to the vulvar world in using clobetazole for vulvar disease in adults and in children. Now here is my very strong bias. 
I think that some of the clobetazole generics are irritating on the genitalia. I use the brand, I mean, I use the generic <clears throat> for my day-to-day -day, uh, treating when I need uh, an ultrapotent steroid, but on the genitalia, I ask that my patients get brand name Timovate. Uh, some patients do fine with that, with the, with the clobetazole, but I have a fair number that are irritated even by the uh, generic clobetazole ointment. So I strongly ask my patients the first month to use the Timovate brand ointment. Um, you can certainly use tacrolimus and pimacrolimus, but I find that they're irritating to kids unless the skin is already in good shape in general, but especially on the genitalia. Um, bland emollients, I love Vaseline, excuse me, petrolatum, petroleum jelly, whether it's Walmart brand or whatever. There's some studies looking at testosterone versus petrolatum for lichen sclerosis, and both groups improved by over 50%, showing us that petroleum jelly feels really good on the vulva. So I will have people use that rather than commercial preparations of moisturizers because there's so little in it that's going to irritate or hurt people. Nighttime sedation. If they're rubbing and scratching, you've got to knock these kids out because otherwise they'll continue an irritant dermatitis with their fingernails all night long. <clears throat> so here's this same little girl um, after two weeks of uh, Timovate brand, clobetazole, water, and nighttime sedation. But then you've got to keep the mother from going back to doing the things that might have been done. This also is Alaska. Lichen sclerosis is um, a fun, fun condition now. When I st first started looking after it in the early 80s, it was so not fun because there was so little that we could do to help it. And now most people do extremely well. And now this is an adult, of course, and you can see the classic signs of hypopigmentation and crinkling of the skin, loss of the labia minora, uh, purpura erosions, and you know, this is really the classic of what we expect. Uh, it looks somewhat different in children, at least partly because little girls don't have labia minora until they start getting estrogen. And the second thing is uh, the skin is plumper and you see less of this kind of crinkling. Uh, lichen sclerosis is probably, at least partly, autoimmune. It clusters with other autoimmune diseases, including thyroid disease. Almost all postmenopausal women with lichen sclerosis are hypothyroid, so when you see those women, make sure that you check their thyroid. Um, I did a series of 15 prepubertal children last year, and none of them were hypothyroid, so I think that's probably not important. Now, I didn't do controls, so I don't know if there were, um, if there were subtle differences in children without lichen sclerosis versus children with. We know that this also clusters with lichen planus in adults. We know that there are increased numbers of family members with autoimmune diseases. But the people with lichen sclerosis don't have any other significant autoimmune diseases other than lichen planus and thyroid diseases. So don't go looking there and don't bring that up to mom. Usually these children are itchy and they're irritated. Uh, the skin is extremely fragile. If you look at the biopsies, uh, you've got a thin epidermis sitting on dermis that looks like gel uh, gelatin. It's this amorphous mush, and it probably is about like gelatin. So the kid scratches, and the skin just slides off. Um, it's easy for them to get these erosions. It's easy for them to get purpura, and then they itch, but they scratch, and it hurts, and it's just a really tough problem for them. And because their skin is already so thin, that puts them also at risk for secondary infection. This is a somewhat germy area. 
Um, this often presents in children with constipation because perianal lichen sclerosis is extraordinarily common in little girls. So they have a bowel movement, they split, it hurts, they don't want to have a bowel movement again, they retain feces and they get constipated. Interestingly enough, little boys who get lichen sclerosis, men who get lichen sclerosis, never get perianal disease. It's never been reported. Um, um, lichen sclerosis occurs primarily in adult and, and postmenopausal women, but I see it quite a lot in children. In my area, the, far, the pediatricians are becoming more and more uh, familiar with it, but I'm board certified in pediatrics, and I never heard the name lichen sclerosis. So don't expect your pediatricians to be very familiar with it. Um, here is, our, is a child who has got pretty classic lichen sclerosis. You can see the perianal involvement. And lichen sclerosis likes the clitoral area and the perianal perineal body area. It often will completely skip the middle of the vulva. You can see that this child's got crinkling. You can see that she's got this purpura. You can see that she's getting some agglutination of the clitoral hood over the clitoris. I believe, after looking at a whole bunch of children, that probably some agglutination, some resorption of the clitoral hood and sticking to the clitoris is probably normal in a lot of children. Nobody's ever looked at that. People have looked at hymens because of the whole um, um, child abuse scenario. And there's an article that's come out in the last few months looking at college students saying that about 20 of them will have adhesions of the clitoris to the clitoral hood. And I'll bet that a lot of little girls have that normally. Um, I, have, I cannot find where anybody's looked. So if any of you ever have a good reason to go home and like look at your children that are five to eight years old, if they'll let you, let me know if your asymptomatic children uh, have got those adhesions. I don't see asymptomatic children anymore uh, who've got vulvar problems. And I can't exactly say to the child who's got molluscum on her shoulder, can I look at your vulva, please? Um, <laughs> Because this isn't a quick look. This is a look and put on your glasses and try and retract things. So, I th yes. Oops. Okay. Um, right up here. You should be able, if you can see, I'm trying to separate the, there's a little tiny hole right there. I should be able to pull that back and expose the clitoris. And it's just stuck there. Uh, right there. It just won't pull back and you can't see the clitoris. I have one child that had totally scarred over her clitoris and I saw her back after seven years. I started calling in all my patients to see how many of these children have had self-resolution of their lichen sclerosis since we used to think it was going to go away and now we believe it doesn't. And her scarring where her clitoris was completely buried is now at 18, completely normal. So it may, be it may be reversible, whereas it is not in adults. That's a series of one. Take it for what it's worth. Here's another child who has got lichen sclerosis. She also has vitiligo. Ah, I forgot, yes. Vitiligo is definitely more common in, in, in people, especially children with lichen sclerosis. And I think you can see on here where the lichen sclerosis starts and where the... Where the um, uh, vitiligo is because the vitiligo is going to be no texture change at all, just depigmentation. And it can be hard to pick up on some of these little girls who've got very pale vulvas. 
Another child with lichen sclerosis. Uh, again, this you can see why these children are sometimes uh, uh, diagnosed as having child abuse. And this child was brought to me with a diagnosis of child abuse. Her um, parents were divorced. It was really ugly. And um, she has she has what is called pink pyramidal protrusion. Can you see this kind of little globby thing sticking out uh, just at? Uh, 12 o'clock in perianal skin. It can be a normal finding. It can happen with any inflammation on a child's anogenital skin. I've seen it a few times on adults. It doesn't mean anything. It is not a growth. And usually it gets much better as the quality of the skin gets better and that skin gets firmer and not so edematous or mushy. But that's what a pink pyramidal protrusion is. Here's another child and uh, she has got edema of the clitoral hood. You can see that it's a little bit hypopigmented, but it's a very puffy clitoral hood. That should be just a thin flap of skin. There's also midline adhesions in this child. You often will see these children with smegma because it hurts for them to wash. I'm trying to pull back the clitoral hood here. Won't go. Just won't go. She has some um, erosions, and when you see erosions, you need to be thinking of likely secondary bacterial infection when they're uh, poorly demarcated erosions like this. You get them in two ways. One's fingernail surgery, and you can usually pretty much tell that because they're well demarcated erosions, or you can see these just poorly demarcated superficial ones, um, and if you add an ultra-potent steroid to this, you're likely to get a full-blown infection. I'll show you a picture of that in a minute. Little boys can get this too. Uh, this is a child who was referred to me because he had phimosis, and when the urologist sent the foreskin in, they diagnosed lichen sclerosis and sent him over to me. And I said, thank you, I need this picture. But since lichen sclerosis on boys is cured with circumcision, it was a non-issue by that point. God's a man. Um, <laughs> lichen sclerosis also. The, the clinical appearance sometimes... You know, when I was a pediatrician... And this is a long time ago. This was in the mid-70s that I was a pediatrician. I spent all this time trying to get women to breastfeed, good thing, trying to have them to have natural childbirth, why? Um, and trying to have them not do circumcisions on their poor little pitiful babies. Well, first of all, they weren't using anesthesia back then, which I thought was just cruel and unusual, and I still do. But now that I've been a dermatologist, circumcise those baby boys. The British, where they, um, where they have the same basic genetic pool as we still have right now, but are, are fast changing, and they don't circumcise, the amount of penile disease is unbelievably more common. Uh, lichen planus, lichen sclerosis, psoriasis are remarkably more common and worse problems in um, uncircumcised people, and circumcision is curative for many of these problems. Uh, Zunes. Uh, uh, plasma cell balanitis, all of those things. Okay, sometimes in kids, it's not nearly that obvious. You know, people get up here and they show you classic stuff and then you have this kid or this person come in and it doesn't look like anything you saw and it's not clear. And that is very, very common. Uh, you can try and uh, diagnose lichen sclerosis by response to therapy, but that's not going to work because everything responds to topical steroids. Uh, histologic confirmation, I really hate, you know, talk about biopsying the face of a two-month-old. I really don't like biopsying the vulva of a young child when mother's already so, and if dad's there, you're in big trouble. Um, I don't know that they can tell the difference between me biopsying their vulva and child abuse with their parents sitting there saying it's okay. 
Having said that, if you do it right, I have no problems. You know, you put, put on the topical anesthetic and you get to know the kid first when, with a visit. But still, very often, you get back a biopsy that's nonspecific and you still don't have your answer. That's another damage control thing. If, when, you, when you biopsy the vulva especially, if you don't know what's going on, it's very likely that your biopsy will be nonspecific. So tell them ahead of time that it may not give you an answer, but it's one tool in your diagnosis that you will be putting together with your exam. Um, photo documentation. If, I, if something is classic lichen sclerosis, I'm going to take a picture of it and put it in their chart, and I'm going to call that diagnostic. Sometimes I just live with uncertainty, like this child right here. I wasn't sure what was going on with this child. There was some hypopigmentation anteriorly and around the perineal body and posterior foreshadow, which is where lichen sclerosis likes to be. I was unable to retract the clitoral hood over the, the clitoris, but I've already just told you that I think that that might be normal in kids. And with this child, I told the parents, I, didn't, I think if, there's, if it's going to be positive, I'm going to get a biopsy from right there. Sure, I want to do that. So sometimes you're just going to live with indecision, and you're going to tell them that this is either irritant or um, 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 eczema, contact dermatitis, uh, or uh, mild atopic dermatitis, or it's um, lichen sclerosis, and they're going to get better with what you're telling them, and the problem is going to be long-term. And then you follow that kid and keep them safe until it declares itself. It is not always possible to diagnose what's going on. So how do you treat it? Well, the old treatment for adults was testosterone, but you don't want to do that on a child because you don't want them to get clitoromegaly and hair and all that kind of stuff. So we treat them with estrogen and progesterone. And the only thing that's FDA approved for treating lichen sclerosis is topical estrogen. Unfortunately, it doesn't work. Um, I don't know how it got FDA approved. It clearly was grandfathered in at some point because it's in the package inserts for some of these things, but there's no study showing that it works in a placebo-controlled trial. The old and the new therapy for little boys, as I've already said, is circumcision. There is one good study in adults looking at testosterone versus vehicle. Uh, both showed uh, about a 50% improvement in symptoms, no change in the appearance of the skin. A three-arm study looking at Timovate brand clobetazole versus testosterone versus vehicle showed about 97% of people with um, uh, uh, Timovate doing very, very well, and 50% of the others. So the treatment of choice in children and in adults is ultrapotent steroid or an ultrapotent steroid or an ultrapotent steroid. Um, here's the child that you saw that I gave you a picture of a few minutes, that I showed you a picture of a few minutes ago who came in with a diagnosis of, um, of child abuse. And here she is. She has not, not only is her purpura gone, but look at the difference in her clitoris and the edema around her clitoral hood where there was no, um, there was no even hypopigmentation before, but the edema is much better. Her pink pyramidal pr protrusion is better, and she went on to do very well for the next month, and then her parents quit treating her. Um, so you use the Timovate twice daily until the texture and is normal. The color sometimes takes longer. As soon as the texture is normal, you can go to once, three times a week. You need to show them how to put this on. A one gram tube, a sample tube, should last a family a couple of months. You're putting a very, very, very tiny amount on. As I tell my patients, you almost only have to walk past a tube of a topical steroid for this to work. It does not need to look greasy. 
you need to look at these children once a month because it seems like always the parents have quit using the medicine. The kid became asymptomatic, the purple went away, my child's cured, she's different from everybody. No, and so you need to really give them follow-up. You also want to look for side effects. Um, it used to be thought that this went away at puberty so you could quit treating them all together at puberty. It usually does not go away at puberty. I followed 10 of my children through, one, it's gone away. So it happens. And if I have a child who's totally normal, I'll give the family the opportunity at puberty to stop using the medication and see them every three months. Um, the problem is that often children become asymptomatic at puberty because the estrogen kicks in their skin uh, uh, becomes better quality and they don't have symptoms, but they will still continue to have relentless scarring. And this will eventually increase their risk of cancer. Here's a child whose mother said she was born with this. I wish I'd been there. And here she is at baseline and here she is six weeks later and then I lost her to follow up. <clears throat> Another child before and a couple of months later, not clear, not clear, still shiny, still got some texture change, but much better. Now, this is what can happen. You know, those first erosions that I said that child had, and I said if you just added a, a, a potent topical steroid, you were likely to get a real infection. Um, studies, or I should say series, that look at little girls who are treated with a topical steroid for lichen sclerosis, a significant number in the first few weeks will develop uh, an infection, usually staph or strep. So here's this little girl to begin with. Here she is one month later. You know, she didn't even have any erosions. And so I walk in with this big smile, and how are we now? And they go, awful. I'm sure you've had that done when you know somebody's doing to do well. It was a slam dunk, and I looked at it, and I was like, oh. And I also do, like Joe, and I culture everybody. Now, I'm going and start her on an antibiotic, but our local emergency department just puts everybody on trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. I worry about the skin and about TEN as well, even though I haven't seen it in one of my healthy patients. But our MRSA rate in Charlotte is over 50% of, um, of our staff. So, and I don't want to put everybody on um, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. Most of our people are uh, sensitive to clindamycin. So that's what I put little kids on is clindamycin, but it tastes terrible. Uh, but I put her on soaks and clindamycin. She grew out regular staff. And at, you can see at the end of three months of treating her, and stopped her timivate for a little while. And she did very well, ultimately. But warn parents. And if you see erosions, if you see hyperkeratosis, if you see mucky skin, I will give those kids a week of clindamycin uh, the week they start their medication. Just, and, and when I do that, I don't see an infection. Um, Secondary infection is common at first, just like I said, and that I will treat empirically to begin with. Other options, tacrolimus, pimicrolimus. Um, I have a few kids on this. I don't use it often because I find it irritating. The other thing is we all know that those are um, black boxed for squamous cell carcinoma and for lymphoma leukemia. Uh, lichen sclerosis has about a 3% risk of squamous cell carcinoma when it is untreated. That's not going to happen in children, but that's when the whole process starts. And I don't want to put something that's black boxed on skin that has a known malignant potential unless I have to. Now, I've got some parents who cannot use small amounts of medication. Can't do it. You've seen those with eczema, too. You know, you give them a tuba uh, and they call back two days later and they've used it all. I have uh, parents who can't remember 
to use medication three times a week long term. I can, de I can, I can uh, deal with that. I understand that. My vitamin D once a week is a real problem for me. So I'll sometimes give, give them something they have to put on every day and not have to be careful with. But I make sure that we have the discussion in the office um, about cancer and about how I feel about it. And I document it in the chart and all that sort of thing. It's awfully expensive. It's not usually needed. Uh, emollients are wonderful for kids who are uncomfortable and for adults who are uncomfortable. Using nothing but petroleum jelly will make these people feel better. Extragenital disease. Um, I see extragenital disease in children more than I do in adults, and every once in a while they'll have the all-overs. I've had children with extragenital disease on their face, on their eyelids, and I have had dismal luck with ultrapotent steroids on their extragenital disease. I've had much better uh, results with um, uh, tacrolimus and pimicrolimus. Uh, so that's what I use on the extragenital disease. Um, also, with uh, tretinoin. With tretinoin, I've had pretty good results, but then, you know, I've got the, the irritant side effects of that. Um, other things, I've talked about the squamous cell carcinoma. Uh, we believe that if you can keep lichen sclerosis completely controlled, you're not going to get squamous cell carcinoma. Essentially, all squamous cell carcinomas in women with lichen sclerosis are in postmenopausal women with hyperkeratotic lesions. So if you can keep them from being hyperkeratotic, pretty hard to keep them from becoming postmenopausal eventually, but hopefully you can keep them from developing hyperkeratotic lesions, you're going to prevent cancer or at least really decrease that risk. All right, vaginitis in prepubertal girls. Now, I know you're dermatologists and vaginas are not what you think of as where you should be, but you know, the vagina is lined with skin. The mouth is lined with skin. Uh, if we're going to look after lichen planus in the mouth, which we should, then we need to look, at, we need to pay attention to the vagina. And we really need to do that badly because gynecologists think of yeast, bacterial vaginosis, and trichomonas, and a few think of atrophic vaginitis, and that's it. Nothing else happens in the vagina. And you can get lichen planus or pemphigus or all kinds of stuff in the vagina. And most of the time it's on the vulva, sometimes it's not, but even if it is, you still have to treat it. And little girls can get vaginitis. Um, usually, and you're not going to go be, be putting a speculum in a five-year-old girl, but there's some rules of thumb that can really help. They may present to you with vulvitis because these purulent, yellow, green vaginal secretions are giving them an irritant contact dermatitis at the introitus. They're, they're having yellow, green discharge on their underwear, and they're burning and they're itching. Uh, they're not going to have vaginal candidiasis until they get um, estrogen in their vagina. That's the reason when you have a five-month-old girl with a diaper dermatitis with yeast, you don't have to treat their vagina because it doesn't go in the vagina until there's estrogen there. So if you've got vaginitis the infectious condition that you need to consider is uh, bacterial strep, especially alpha hemolytic strep, and staphylococcal, staph aureus. Those are the two main things that are going to do it. If you grow out enteric, it's just poop that was there for the most part. Um, pinworms. Pinworms can cause vaginitis, and sometimes they may or may not get the rectal symptoms. The, but those pinworms will go right from the rectal area and crawl right up there in the, in, in the vagina. 
So that's even something, you know, it's cheap, it's easy. You can always give them a pill of Vermox and see if it helps. The problem is having to explain that to mom. Um, she can always say, I don't think this is going on, but it could be, it's easy, take this one pill. Uh, varicella, weirdly enough, when, uh, children do get um, lesions of varicella in their vagina so that children with chicken pox, which hopefully we're not seeing, uh, will get vaginitis, a purulent vaginal uh, discharge from both the primary lesions and from the secondary strep that they tend to get as the varicella clears. So those are three things to consider. And the, the, they, two of the three can be chronic. The varicella goes away, but the other can stay there. The other thing to be very, uh, have a very high index of suspicion for is foreign body. That is about the most common thing to cause a chronic vaginal uh, uh, in infection, vaginitis. It looks exactly the same. You may grow out a bacterium, you may give them an antibiotic and they clear, but it comes back. Most common thing is that toilet paper has migrated up there. Um, but you can find all kinds of things. I found hairpins, I found Barbie doll parts, I found sticks. So you can, it's just amazing what can end up up there. Um, since the most common thing is toilet paper, sometimes you can just take, um, if you can find somebody who's got a soft, tiny urinary catheter, and if you've got a cooperative child, you can just thread that tiny urinary catheter into the vagina and flush it with warm water and flush out some, some toilet paper. But otherwise, have your friendly gynecologist take them to the operating room and do an exam under sedation. So that's what you need to do if you have a child with a purulent vaginitis who has normal cultures when you put a damp Q-tip at the introitus. A dry Q-tip will tear up prepubertal non-estrogenized skin. You don't have to put that Q-tip Q -tip into the vagina, but just at the introitus to try and do your cultures there. All right, this was also Alaska. Labial adhesions. Labial adhesions occur very commonly in little girls, and it's a relatively uh, benign thing and that you will not see them very often because the pediatricians know they're there, the pediatricians are going to treat them and they're not going to get to you unless they're a real problem. And you can see, I think of labial adhesions as the labia minora scar to the labia majora, but in children that's not what happens. It's really not labial adhesions, it's introidal adhesions where you get midline agglutination, um, usually towards the back of the uh, vestibule or the introitus right here. So you're getting a, a um, slowly narrowing of the introitus. Most of the time it doesn't matter. If mom doesn't look, nobody ever knows. But every once in a while you will get enough of an adhesion that um, you can get some impairment of function. Let me go, I don't, okay, like this. Now, this child was fine. She had no urinary tract infections. She had no significant obstruction. But the problem was she was um, pooling urine underneath that adhesion. And she would stand up and whoosh, it would all come out. Ouch. And she was being sent home from daycare because she wasn't toilet trained. Well, she was, but it's just that um, it, it kind of leaked out and dribbled. She had had a, um, a, a urologist who had separated this under brutane twice, meaning just took it and went <coughs> And he was going to do it the third time and the mom thought that probably wasn't a very good idea. And these very thin tissues, if they're irritated, 
they're going to stick right back down together anyway. So let me go back to my last slide. Common occurrence usually doesn't interfere with function, unknown cause. Anything that irritates will let the skin stick together. The vulva, even in adults, will scar at the drop of a hat. It takes almost nothing. One episode of Stevens-Johnson syndrome, and you can lose your labia minora and scar over your clitoris and scar your vagina shut. Pemphigus vulgaris, which the hallmark is that it doesn't, doesn't scar, will scar on the vulva. So especially on a little prepubertal vulva, where the skin is, is thin, anything will scar. Uh, so all you have to do is just get some irritant vulvitis, and if it affects the modified mucous membrane, you can get some labial adhesions. The good thing is, in children, this usually goes away, so it's not, it's not a, a, a crucial thing to treat immediately. Um, many people have found that very mild lichen sclerosis can cause labial adhesions. If you look at this little girl, it's pretty hard to tell that she's even got lichen sclerosis. Here are two children who had lichen sclerosis as a cause of it. And they've got that real subtle lichen sclerosis, like I was telling you, that's awfully hard to tell. Uh, they had some perianal disease that, that gave you the diagnosis and some hypopigmentation here. So starting these children on some Timovate and these adhesions just, just within one month had nice and, um, and opened up again. So right back here. You can see kind of a little line right there where it's... People in the front at least can see that, and it just opened up. With this little girl here, um, her mother used it, and she called me on a Saturday night. Everything fell apart. I said, what do you mean everything fell apart? She said, it all fell apart, and she's bleeding. So I met her, and it had just suddenly separated, and she had a little dot of blood there and just went on to heal. It did what it was supposed to. So reassure these, these um, parents. Um, if there's only a little bit in the back, don't worry about it. Tell them it'll go away. That doesn't work. They always want to do something about it. Give them some estrogen cream. Have them rub it on. It may be the, um, the rubbing and the massage. It may be that petroleum jelly would work just as well. Or give them a little dot of Timovate because if there was some inflammation that precipitated it to begin with, then you've killed two birds with one shot. Some people think that poor hygiene might be playing a role in this. I'm always afraid to bring that up because I'm afraid they'll go too much the other way but I ask them to be sure they dunk the kid in a, in a uh, bath every day, every other day, and uh, uh, wash off any smegma with soft fingers. Um, okay. I am going to... This I'll do this quickly. Um, this is something that when you look at it, you either know it or you don't, and you don't see it very often. But these are pseudo-warts, that are, caught, that are produced in a child who is incontinent. This is a peculiar pattern of irritant contact dermatitis that happens almost only in children. Now, it's, it happens in some older adult women primarily who are in diapers, but it's mostly a childhood phenomenon. You may also know this by the name of granuloma gluteal infantum or Jacquet's diaper dermatitis. We used to think that this was caused by topical steroids, but I think it's more of a matter of when the kids got irritated, we put topical steroids on it, and it didn't really work. And so children developed these flat-topped, symmetrical, red or skin-colored papules. Uh, I think that you could be concerned 
about this being condylomata lata because they're so flat top. That would be the main thing in the differential diagnosis for me. And um, this child was sent to me with a diagnosis of genital warts, but they're too flat topped. And look how remarkably symmetrical these are. So that really shouts out that this is outside job. And um, this child was incontinent of both urine and feces. She was retarded. This is a child with chronic uh, diarrhea from inflammatory bowel disease. Once again, flat-topped, bilaterally symmetrical, with tendencies to lines. Not quite like um, uh, allergic contact dermatitis or roost dermatitis, but still a tendency to lines. And liquid feces is just one of the most irritating things that has ever been put on this earth. So this child also has, has erosions. And you're going to almost always get that, um, that uh, history of incontinence. So the treatment uh, consists of trying to stop the incontinence. And, you know, that's just hard to do. You have a retarded child or somebody with chronic diarrhea, so you put on a barrier paste and do the best that you can, but it can be very, very hard to do. And topical steroids just don't help at all. Here's a child who had pseudohermaphroditism, and that was associated with incontinence in her, and she has similar, similar lesions. All right. Apathy and young girls. How many people here have seen apathy and young girls? Okay, a few. Um, keep your eyes open because it's likely that you will see more. Um, let me have a show of hands as to how many people are going to have questions for me. Okay, not too many. Good. So I'm going to give people five minutes for questions instead of more. Um, this is a child who was seven. I'm sorry, she was 11. And um, she came to see me on a Monday morning in the office. Five days earlier, she had developed a sore throat malaise. The next morning, she had um, vulvar pain. They took her to the pediatrician. The pediatrician saw ulcers and said, oh, you have herpes. And we know this isn't herpes because these are ulcers. Herpes is erosive. Erosions are uh, superficial. You can't feel erosions. They're just deep red um, uh, um, papules, whereas ulcers are innies. You can really feel those. They often will have this white fibrin base, and these are bigger. But they, uh, the family was told she has herpes, and they gave her some acyclovir. It got worse. Uh, by, by Saturday, she was in the hospital on IV acyclovir, and she had, been, um, had serologies done for syphilis, and she had a biopsy done to rule out chancroid. Um, those aren't common diseases that we see in this age, and certainly we need to think of them because they are very, very dangerous, but it shouldn't be the first thing that you think of. But unless you're aware of it, you don't realize how common apathy are in children between the ages of about 9 and about 18. It is quite a common thing. Um, and they look very similar and, and from one child to another. So most of the time you don't need um, painful or expensive testing to diagnose this. They are almost always preceded by fever, by sore throat. It's likely that they're precipitated by a virus infection. And the, the, the popular thing right now is EBV to cause these. And certainly we know that EBV can, but it doesn't really make very much difference. You can check the kids for it if you want to. But um, the treatment is going to end up being the same, and I think any viral infection can precipitate it. The diagnosis is clinical. These fairly large, punched-out ulcers. 
usually with the prodrome. Most of the time, these kids only get it once. It doesn't come back over and over like oral apathy. Most of the time, they're bigger than oral apathy. They can occur on the hair-bearing skin, or they can occur on the modified mucous membranes or the mucous membranes of the introitus. You often will get this remarkable surrounding redness. Uh, there was no cellulitis here, but hey, I'm a weenie. I culture it and I started on antibiotic until I found out for sure. But there was no infection. This was all inflammatory, and um, she got better much quick, much very quickly. Now, this I think this is interesting when I talk about how common this is, because this was Abigail. She was the 14-year-old daughter of my nurse. My nurse called me on a Sunday night and said, "Libby, Abigail's got some of those canker sores on her vulva. Uh, would you phone in some prednisone?" I said, does she ever get them in her mouth? Yeah, she gets them in her mouth. She ever had one here? No, but I know it's, it's what it looks like. So I said, sure, I'll phone in prednisone. Let me see her in the morning. And this is what she was the next morning, exactly what she had. These white fibrin-based, well-demarcated. People can have, uh, these children can have from one to a bunch. They are very painful. Sometimes these children can't urinate. Um, it's miserable, miserable. Um, they're usually round. Look how big this one is. I mean, you know, this one, and poor girl's got her period. Like I said, God's a man. Um, and it goes all the way over to the other side. Um, and here's a small one. And sometimes they can be very small, but usually they're good size. This is not bechettes. Just because you got big old ulcers on your vulva and you have ulcers in your mouth at times, that doesn't make it bechettes. That makes it complex apthosis. To have bechettes, you have to have chronic systemic disease. Not a prodrome, chronic systemic disease. You need to have inflammatory arthritis. You need to have inflammatory eye disease. You need to have some inflammatory bowel disease. You need to have some definable neurologic abnormalities. Uh, this is just complex apthosis. And don't even use the B word, because if you do, they're going to go online and they're going to get all this stuff from Turkey about men dying. So just don't even go there. I have one young lady that I carry as Bechettes, but it's a, a Western Bechettes, not from Eastern countries, because she does have arthritis, she does have vasculitis, and um, uh, she has something else systemically, immunologically going on. Um, if, ch if children get recurrent, um, let me see, where am I? The treatment for this is reassurance. No, this is not sexually transmitted. No, this is not herpes. This is just a little bit of prednisone deficiency. And since this occurs in children usually between 9 and 18 or so, I'll give them 40 milligrams each morning. If, it's, um, if they're a small person, 60. If it's a big person, and... Um, um, I will give them another prescription and tell them if it happens again, start taking it that very second and call me. And then I'll see them the next morning. If they're getting it frequently, then I will put them on Dapsone. And that usually works very, very well to put them on suppressive Dapsone. Uh, this can also scar. If you can see, this child was sent over to my office with an indwelling catheter from the hospital. She has necrosed off about a third of her right labium minus. And I think that I will stop right there. What questions do people have for me? Thank you. That was very... Oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. 
For the treatment of liquid feces, do you like the petrolatum as a barrier cream or do you use something with zinc or something else? Yeah, I usually use uh, zinc oxide or desitin. Desitin's not quite as stiff, but it's stiffer than, than, um, uh, than Vaseline. So yes, I do do that. And then of course, trying to tell the family how important it is to get to it really quickly, to, to check very, very often and to flush the area with, um, with water to try and get it and, and patting dry and then glopping on some more. Thank you. Thank you. Actually, yes. as a follow-up to that, um, I have a three-year-old who would always get diarrhea when he drank juice. There's a difference between Desitin Creamy and Desitin Original. Desitin Original has 40% zinc oxide. Desitin Creamy only has around 18 or 20%. So you want to go with a higher percentage of the zinc oxide. Great. Thank you. Um, for perianal warts in children, how often are you concerned about um, sexual abuse? Perianal warts in children and sexual abuse under the age of two. I am not concerned at all about sexual abuse um, any more than I am any other child. However, remember that about one in five children is sexually abused. So that's a huge, huge number. But nearly all children under the age of two with perianal warts or genital warts um, uh, got them in an innocuous way. If they're over two, they can certainly be gotten in any way. It can be either sexually or not sexually. So I will either, if I know the family, talk with the family, um, or um, I will report them to Child Protective Services for a workup. But when I do that, I try and let them know that I am not reporting sexual abuse. I'm, I'm reporting a skin finding that is sometimes associated with sexual abuse because our local child protective services doesn't see a difference between herpes, syphilis, and genital warts. So they need education when I report them of this probably is not, but I'm not able to sort that out in my office. Go ahead. Yes. I had a GYN colleague come back all excited about Crisco as a um, soothing, I guess, application that patients can try and I don't know if you've heard anything or well when I was a dermatology resident we had low-income patients we used Crisco in them and it's fine it, it's I don't think that it has anything to offer over something that's not quite as as, as stiff as petroleum jelly um, it certainly doesn't have as many additives in it for people to be irritated by it becomes rancid <laughs> Gross. You need to keep it, you know, so, so it's not one of my favorites. Now, we use vegetable oil. If you mean, when you say Crisco, I'm thinking shortening. Yeah. But Crisco comes in vegetable oil as well. And for adult women, we use vegetable oil as a vaginal lubricant all the time because the KYs and all that kind of stuff can be extremely irritating. And that was before they were trying to make them irritating with KY warming and KY stinging and all that. So... <laughs> So, so, so for as a lubricant, the oil, yes. As shortening, not so much. You mentioned yes. for a, for like a superficial vaginitis that might be bacterial. What's your rationale for choosing oral clindamycin versus topical genomycin ointment? If I'm treating vaginitis, it's hard to get genomycin ointment up in a little girl's vagina. How about superficial infection? Superficial infections, um, because there's, it's usually fairly. I don't think of genomycin as being that great. I may be wrong. I 
do as little topical medication to the genitalia as I can because of irritant properties. I try and treat everything orally, and if I can't do that, then with an ointment. One more question. Because you, not, not these many people raise their hands when I ask how many people are going to ask questions. Go ahead. Okay. Do and I'm going to be here at the break. You know, it's break next, I think, so come get me. Yes, ma'am. When treating lichen sclerosis, do you tell patients to limit intercourse before they're in the maintenance phase? Do I tell people to, to limit intercourse during the maintenance? During the maintenance? No, before. Dur before the maintenance yeah. phase. Well, first of all, clearly, in this talk, uh, uh, it's not too much of an issue. Uh, if they're having sex and they want to keep having sex, that's fine. It's, it's a matter, you know, if, if they're not too irritated, uh -huh. good, go for it. Okay. If they are, then I tell them, nice. expect it to be a month before they're going to be comfortable enough to do it. And that's assuming they don't have scarring that's going to be a problem. Thank you very much.